This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, October 31st, 2022. Happy Halloween to all of you. I hope uh, everyone has uh, some fun things planned for tonight, and uh, and I'll be out roaming the streets uh, with my kids, and they'll be good. It'll be uh, be fun, and holiday season is fast approaching. This is kind of the first, right, uh, of of the of the three holidays to to close out the year, and we are experiencing some spooky times. It's been a spooky year for everybody, uh, but just like Halloween ends, uh, the spooky times will end in markets, and that will give way to uh, more fruitful, exciting times like Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? So you have to see through the volatile times uh, and take advantage of the fear and the greed that is inevitable. Investors get off sides, usually one way or the other. Year, two years ago, it was greed. Everyone was off sides. Everybody thought that the new COVID world was permanent. And they didn't realize that the trends that emerged post-pandemic were, in a lot of ways, transitory, to use that word that everybody's been uh, uttering over the past uh, year or so. Now, there are some things, minor things that are durable, but for the most part, we're getting back to, to life. And those longer-term trends for the most part, endure. And now, with the world changing back to kind of pre-pandemic uh, environment, people are fearful. Fearful of a slower economy, fearful of those changes, especially in the tech sector, for example, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And that has meant opportunity. Whenever there is fear, whenever there is greed, there is opportunity. When there's too much greed, it's to sell. When there's too much fear, it's typically to buy. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that you, you diverge from your overall plan and your strategy. But it's a time to lean into it and make smart, calculated risks. So the question is, your is your portfolio optimized? Is it balanced for this new environment? That in some ways is going back to pre-pandemic trends, but in also other ways, it's changing a bit. Right? Working from home, deglobalization, persistent inflation, we now have a war. All of these things are driving different dynamics. So it's a different world. 
in the investment landscape. So I'm Justin Klein. I'm here on this radio program and podcast to help you maximize your portfolio strategy and your decision-making process. So I look forward to this Invest Talk podcast because I love answering your finance and investment questions. And as always, the phone number never changes. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's 888 chart And I've got a lot of material for you today. My main focus point is on the IRS and its changing of the max contributions to 401ks and IRAs. How should you think about these changes in the context to your workplace retirement accounts? I also have time permitting some other things to discuss. One would be the route in tech stocks. What's really driving it? How does this compare to the 2000 tech bubble crash? Hint, not quite as deep yet. Uh, so we're going to look at that story. Also, non-traded REITs. A lot of quote-unquote financial advisors uh, sell these to their clients. And they get big commissions and kickbacks and uh, it's, and then they're, they're listed, uh, like they're non-correlated to the markets and other REITs. Well, is that true? So we're gonna look at that. And then lastly, if we have time, we're going to touch on the U S treasury market and some changes that are going on there and which is usually a boring market, but I expect that to be a more exciting market, more volatile market over the next decade or so. So we're going to look at what's happening right now. Now, I've seen some voice bank questions ready to play, and I've got an iTunes review on Dr. Pepper. And my perspective segment looks at some of the finance theories of a well-known figure you're probably seeing on CNBC. So we're going to look at some things I agree with him on and not so much, which one of his theories are true or false. So I've got this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk, and we're taking your calls live as well at 888-99-CHART. Now, let's take a look, a quick look at the market today. It was basically a flat day. Uh, the the SP was down about two thirds of one percent, so it looked like a flat day or it looked like a down day there. The Russell that was roughly flat. The NYSE down forty eight points, only about a third of one percent. So if you look at the broader indices, it was a very mildly negative day. Uh, the Nasdaq that was down one hundred and fourteen points, a little over one percent. So once again, uh, the tech stocks, the growth stocks. Uh, weighing on the market, even kind of a follow through to uh, last week's weakness. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that interest rates were up a bit, the 10 year up six, uh, 6.7 basis points uh, back above, uh, firmly above the 4% level going into the Fed meeting with the Fed meeting, they're starting their, they're convening tomorrow. Uh, and then they are ending on, 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 on Wednesday, and they're going to make their announcement. Okay, so uh, that I don't expect a whole lot of volatility until then. So a similar pause, mild pullback uh, for the next couple of days is probably your base case until there's a little bit more clarity from the Fed. We know it's going to be 75 basis points on Wednesday, but what do they say about December? Are they going to promise 50? Are they going to say maybe it's going to be 25? Are they going to talk about pausing into the beginning of the year? What kind of hints do they give towards the first quarter of next year as well. Uh, so that will be important for the markets. And, and I think that's what the market's kind of waiting for. Remember, we had a, we had a big move over the past few weeks. And consolidation uh, into that news event would not shock me. And even consolidation throughout the entire week would not shock me either. All right. 
Now let's take, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get to an, our first listener question after this break. I welcome your finance and investment questions now. No question is too simple or too complex. You set the agenda. So give us a call on a best talk at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey, guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor. 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Let's go to Richard in the Bay Area looking at. TGB. Yeah. Hey, Justin. Uh, thanks for taking my call. This is a tiny company that um, I was thinking I was attracted to because it doesn't have, it doesn't seem like its mind has a geopolitical risk. And then also where we are at the cycle, I thought like a tiny company is better than a big company in terms of return on investment. Yeah, well, I, I like what you're thinking in the sense of the geopolitical risk and the fact that uh, their mines are in British Columbia, Canada, as well as uh, here in Arizona in the U.S. And there's there's not a lot of jurisdiction risk uh, with, with them. Uh, just for everyone else, there's a lot of mining companies that have operations around the world in various countries. And those various countries have various political uh, wins. Sometimes they're very volatile. Sometimes they're more calm. And the more volatile they are, the more there's potential for maybe a rise to power from a, uh, let's say, a leader that would maybe nationalize those assets and confiscate them from the company. Or they'll charge a, a, hard, a large tax to move the end products out of the country. Or maybe they'll just tax that industry as a whole. Maybe they'll, they'll charge large amounts for permits uh, to keep the mines going. So all of those things can happen in odd jurisdic jur jurisdictions. Um, and so I like what you're, you're thinking about there. Now, the bigger question, though, is... What about the long-term history of profitability for the business? And 
I would say it's it's pretty spotty. Um, over the last 10 years, its average return on equity is negative 4%. Median is negative 6.68%. So, you know, it doesn't have a very strong track record of producing great prod, uh, great uh, gr great cash flow, great earnings. So I would look elsewhere here. I, you need a lot of things to line up, not just the jurisdictions. I like that you're thinking about that. A lot of people don't don't think about that. They focus more on the quantitative numbers, right? What what are the what are those metrics? What are the cash flows, etc. And I think that's important. But you got to meld the qualitative, which is that jurisdictional risk. Uh, and this doesn't really hit home for both uh, in my book. And, and that's what I want. I want to see both qualitative and quantitative strength. And I'm not seeing that here. Thanks for the call, Richard. Now, from time to time, we receive email questions. And this one came in from, I'm not sure who it came in from, but it says, I have a question about ExxonMobil. Uh, I picked it up on March, in March, 2020, good timing. Up 233% since, I love the stock, love the companies, the potential with the current market. Do you think they still have some room to grow? Should I sell? Should I sell 50%? It represents six to 7% of my portfolio. Well, first off, 67, six to 7% is a little high for my book. So I would probably trim it and you wanna be trimming it uh, into strength. And right now there is some strength within the oil patch. So probably trimming some of it makes sense. Now, how much to trim? I'd probably trim it back minimum to 5% of your portfolio. Um, beyond that, it would be how much other oil exposure do you have? Do you have any other energy exposure, whether that's natural gas, whether the, are they pipeline companies, oil service companies, etc. And that's a place you want to be overweight. You want to be in the teens, maybe in the 20% if you're an aggressive investor uh, of your overall portfolio. But remember, you want to be spreading that out between multiple names, not just in one, even though Exxon is big, it's diversified, it, 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 uh, it's, it operates up and down the supply chain, the energy supply chain from refining to uh, EMP, uh, etc. So I like Exxon, but should it be this much of your portfolio, probably a little too high, and you need to make sure you're broadening out your exposure to the energy space. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch on our main focus point today, and that in regards to the changes in the 401k contribution rules for 2023. And due to inflation, the IRS has adjusted these limits. And so for next year, 401ks, 403bs, most 457s, and thrift savings plans, your max contribution is going to go up from 20500 to 22500 So nearly a 10% increase. And the catch-up contribution is also going to go up from 6500 to 7500 That means if you're over 50, you can now contribute $30,000 a year. Now they didn't raise the contribution catch-ups in four on IRAs, but the normal contribution limit did go up from 6,000 to 6,500. And then the income limits for Roth uh, holders or Roth contributions went up as well. For single people, 138 to 153,000. And for married, 218,000 to 228,000. And then it starts phasing out from there. So for everybody else, should you contribute the max? A lot has to do with just getting your employer match. That's number one. And I do think you should, if you can, and try to gradually ramp up your contributions each year, especially if you're getting raises. All right. Now we're heading into a break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART.
Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. And of course, your calls are always welcome 24 7. Don't forget to call Invest Talk, 888 99Chart. Hello, Invest Talk. I wanted to ask you about Neocrine Biosciences, ticker symbol NBIX. US dollar is growing, and I wanted to ask your opinion on the stock. Um, why is it going on uh, over 800 PE and still climbing? Uh, looking that makes no earnings, they are supposed to make. 80 cents next earnings and will be this uh, reason and how do you see this stock going forward thank you all right this is nbix which is neurocrine biosciences and what they do is develop and commercialize pharmaceuticals to treat neurological endocrine and psychiatric disorders and i don't see uh, uh 800 p i see an elevated p but that's because analysts are expecting earnings to go up dramatically, not this year, but next year. Only 5% growth this year, but 95% growth next year. Expect to be almost $4 per share in earnings next year. Now, the question is, why? Is there a drug that they're just getting to market next year? That sounds uh, more like what's going to happen. And they make, yeah, they, uh, they make a drug called Elagolix, which is uh, hormone releasing antigenous for women's health, and uh, they have Parkinson patients and Tourette syndrome. So, you know, kind of niche, a niche market, uh, but they're doing well. Um, and if you go based on next year's earnings, call it four bucks, you're at a tw- about a 30, 35 multiple. Still expensive, um, but the technicals are, are very strong. And I would want to look at what potential would be for 24 and 25 is that a one-time bump uh but or is that four dollars going to go to six dollars and then eight dollars and then ten dollars i need to look farther because this is a company historically it's been kind of all over the place with its earnings it lost money up until 2018 made 74 cents then 269 then 265 in 2020 then down last year to a dollar 90 and it's supposed to be a dollar 99 this year so it's only recently profitable and I need to know that trajectory. So you really need to dig into the details of this drug or their drug uh, profile and see what's causing that boost and see how durable it is. If it's durable and it will continue to grow at a nice pace, uh, it might be cheap here. So I take a look at it. Now let's go to Alberto in San Jose looking at IGM. Not IBM, IGM, right? Yes, IGM. Um, I know that they recently signed a contract with Sanofi, I believe, uh, earlier this year. So I know um, it, it has a, a, a good good future with that, that contract they signed. So I just wanted to hear what you thought about it. Can you give me the name of the company? Because I'm seeing IGM as, a, as an ETF. What, what's the symbol again? IGM Bioscience. Oh, I got you. IGMS is the symbol. Got it. Okay. I was looking IGM. Got it. Okay. Uh, So this is a a biotech company that uh, is looking to cure cancer. (laughs) The the holy grail of biotech names. And they have very little uh, revenue. But you said they just signed a deal with Santa Fe? 
Yeah, with Sanofi earlier this year yeah. in March. Okay. Well, analysts are not saying that's going to turn them into some sort of a profit. It's supposed to lose it five dollars and sixty-four cents this year, five dollars and thirty-one cents next year, and the the chart is not looking too hot. Um, so whatever deal they sign, I'd have to look into the details because clearly that's forward-looking. I don't have any of that forward-looking data except for analyst uh, estimates, and analysts aren't really that positive on on whatever deal that was. Um, so it's not something I would buy. You know, the last one was a biotech company, but you can see that growth, that profitability. That would be much more interesting uh, than this. Um, but if you can find something special in the Santa Fe deal that analysts aren't, then it could be a, a hit, but the technicals aren't lining up and the estimates aren't lining up. So I'm passing. Thanks for the call. Now let's pivot over to an iTunes review. Bob, I suppose says, what are your thoughts on Cougar, Keurig, sorry, Cougar, Keurig, Dr. Pepper. I see more growth in the company than Pepsi and Coke. I noticed the dividend increased a bit and the price of the stock lately looks very attractive to me. Okay. So Keurig, Dr. Pepper, $55 billion market cap. Earnings are supposed to grow 5% this year and 10% next year. Those, those estimates are coming down. And if you look at the valuation, I'm not sure what you're seeing here to make it seem like it's super cheap. Uh, it's still trading at about 16 times, 16 and a half times enterprise valued EBITDA. Price of sales is four times. They don't have a ton of debt, but they're, it just looks expensive to me in my book. Um, I'm, I'm going to pass on this. It's not cheap enough. I don't like this multiple that it's trading at. Uh, earnings are growing decently, but once again, those analysts are, are downgrading them. So I'm passing on Dr. Pepper Cure. Remember, consumer staples and inflationary environments, not the greatest sector. There are definitely worse sectors, I'll say that, uh, like tech, but not the greatest sector. So I would look elsewhere. I don't like the multiple, still too high for me, and I would pass. Now, on the next, on Wednesday's Invest Talk, the story behind this question value versus growth stocks, which could be right for you. Now, value stocks remain steady through all sorts of market conditions, while growth stocks demonstrate growth that outpaces the market averages, but in bad times, not so much. I'm Justin Klein, and ready to take your questions live at 888 chart Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value. 
so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. The InvestTalk phone lines are open and waiting for your questions. 888-99-CHART. Hi, uh, this is Steve from Austin, Texas. Um, I had a question, Justin. So thinking about getting a more international exposure, I had two ETFs in mind. The first one is iShares. Um, EWW for sort of a long-term play here would be as like Eastern and Western tensions increase, trying to see you know, a good place to make a bet on what would be a market that would. And then year-to-date, it's only down about 5%, so doing the performance against the broader markets, even with a strengthening dollar. The other ETF is MIN, S-M-I-N, for exposure to India. It's another ETF. Sort of the thesis in mind here is trying to find the next developing market that's primed to grow. And sort of, um, I understand with a sort of complex political regime can be inherently risky, but if things align there, my thought would be that that would do really well curious to hear your thoughts and appreciate everything you all do for us. Uh, have a good one. Bye. I like that you're thinking about foreign market exposure. The dollar strong as it is, it's unlikely to stay this strong uh, and persistent for this long. And this brings opportunity uh, in these foreign markets. And the foreign markets are, are much cheaper than our markets because 
people are just even foreign investors are flooding uh, money into the U.S. And so that's part of the, the valuation premium that you see here in uh, domestic markets. But with foreign investing brings geopolitical risks. And in today's environments, those are heightened. You see that with uh, the Ukraine war, obviously what's going on in China and those stocks crashing. Uh, so you need to be very selective. And the first criteria I would say uh, in this environment will be how much of their economy is dependent or driven by commodities and commodity exports or imports. China, for example, imports 80% of its commodities. Doesn't produce a lot domestically. Even though it's a large country, they don't, they're not resource rich. Whereas a country like Brazil, despite their political issues, they have a lot of oil, a lot of resources that they export to the rest of the world. So that's number one in this environment. Number two is, you know, how close are they to potential geopolitical problems? Are they in the middle of it? Are they allies with maybe uh, Russia or, or, or uh, China? And could they be pulled into that alliance and then cut off from the Western world? Could potentially happen. And so what you're looking at are, are Mexico and India. And I will say this, there is no country in the world I am more bullish on for the next decade than Mexico. They have some of the best demographics in the world, a lot of young people. They are resource rich, even if they don't maximize those resources very well, they're still resource rich. They're relatively insulated from the broader world. They're right next to the largest economy in the world. And the largest economy that's friend-shoring manufacturing. And so things that are just too expensive to produce here in the U.S., a lot of those things are going to go to be produced in Mexico. And in some ways, it's actually cheaper to produce in Mexico than in China. It's just more about getting the infrastructure and building the plants and going through that setup process. And I think many, many com companies are going to be putting capital there. So if I'm picking one or the other, it's definitely Mexico, just because it's the top of my list. Now, India, certainly better than investing in China, but they have their issues. They're importing a lot of oil and energy from Russia. Why? They don't really have a choice. Look what happened to... One of the neighbors, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka made a choice. And they set up their country so that they're importing expensive energy. India doesn't have that luxury. With as many people that they have, billion people, they need cheap and abundant energy to run their economy. Inflation hurts the poorest. And India has a lot of poor people. And so they're an energy importer. And that worries me. Now, you know, do they have their strengths? Yes. Demographics. That's one. 
you already see Foxconn and other uh, large companies setting up production in India. China, uh, Apple, for one, uh, some of their products are now made in India. So there'll still be com com uh, companies that pivot towards India, especially for products that are exported to Europe, for example. And they would need to be within kind of the Asian region because remember, China just puts things together. Same with India. They're not really high value add. It's mainly South Korea, Japan, Taiwan. That's where the more difficult things to produce are produced. Batteries, motors, semiconductors, etc. So there still be some strength there. But if I'm picking one or the other, I'm absolutely a thousand percent picking Mexico. Now let's go to Gene in North Carolina and wants to talk about investing in November. Yes. Hi, Justin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. My question actually deals with avoiding investing during the two, I think it's the two worst months uh, historically. That's uh, September and October, let's say, for the S&P 500. Has anyone done any back testing on the last 20 or 30 years that if, what happens if you avoid just pulling out of the market at the beginning of um, September and getting back in November, how that compares with just buying and holding the S&P 500 throughout the 20 or 30 years? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there is data. And the, the worst years are, the worst months, excuse me, are actually uh, August and September. Uh, a lot, there are some, a lot of crashes and bad things that happen in early October. Um, but those are more one-off. October's are, are, are actually better on average than, than in August. Yes, yeah, September's the worst, and you, you saw that for this September. Um, and markets typically bottom uh, in early October, just like it has so far. Um, so... I don't have the data in front of me. Uh, depends on what time frame you're looking at. Obviously, there's tax consequences potentially as well if you're not in a, a tax deferred account. Um, it's just, and every year it's going to be different. You know, there's there's been many, many, many. Just because this year has been a relatively weak um, August and September, doesn't mean that that's going to happen and repeat next year. And so. What was yeah, that? I was just curious whether or not, uh, just if you did something methodically, just com just comparing with buying and holding the S&P 500 for the long term, whether or not if someone pulled out at the beginning of August, let's say, and, and at the end of September every I, year. I don't, I honestly, I don't have that those numbers in, in front of me. That's, that would be a good question. Now, there's that age-old adage of sell in May and go away. Uh, so, and that's that tends to be true. You're talking about seasonality. Uh, now through April is typically seasonally a very good time to be in the market, the best time to be in the market. Now, once again, it doesn't have to play out. There have been plenty of bad first quarters. Uh, there have been plenty of bad fourth quarters. Um, but this is seasonally the best part, best time to be in the market until April and then May through uh, October. Yeah, that's a, that's a time that tends to be seasonally weak. So if you just did that, um, that you're probably going to do a bit better than the overall market. Um, but once again, tax consequences, not, not going to work every single year, uh, et cetera. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Roger in the Bay area, looking at SPTM. Yeah. Hey, Justin, long time listener of the show. Thanks for everything that you guys do. I'm a regular listener and uh, has helped me a lot. Appreciate it. So my question is regarding, uh, sort of uh, indexing, uh, in investing through ETFs. Mm -hmm. And I, I know most of the folks 
who likes to invest into total market ETFs go towards VTI from mm-hmm. Vanguard. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was actually looking at this ETF SPTM, mm-hmm. uh, which is from the Spider Group from Straight Street, which invests into your S&P 500, then the mid cap 400 and the small cap 600. So it has mm-hmm. a smaller universe of 1500 stocks, which I feel is good enough to capture the entire market rather than going for like 4,000 plus stocks that VTI has, most of it being those micro caps which have no revenue at all. Am I overthinking or is it really good to invest into VTI or would SPTM suffice for covering the whole market? I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you're talking about two very similar funds. They both would be considered large, large cap blends. Uh, they lean towards the growth side of the market. Uh, the the uh, SPTM is a little leans a little more value, so I like that. Uh, but it does also skew a little larger as well because, like you said, it weeds out some of those uh, smaller names. Now, from a sector perspective, it is about 22.8% in tech uh, versus VTI's 23.3, so a little bit uh, better on that front. VTI is 4.6% in energy. This is 5.25. Um, so, you know, there there's some definitely some um, benefits over the VTI because it is leaning more value. It's leaning uh, m- m- more in the right sectors. Now, not nearly enough. Uh, because you know, in this environment, you need to be 15, 20% probably in, in energy, not just five. So I would say it's very incrementally better than, than VTI, but it's, it's very minor. It's, 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 uh, you're not getting too much of a difference here at all. Um, but I would say with the same expense ratio, if I was to pick one or the other, it would probably would be SBTM, but, um, not by a large margin. Thanks for the call. Now, with all the market volatility, many investors might be concerned about their way forward and their long-term financial plan, as well as their long-term portfolio strategy. And we're going to look at a perspective segment for this Monday, and I'll give you assessment of the teachings of Jeremy Siegel. Uh, I call him the permable, the ultimate permable, you know, when markets are, are down, they always bust out, CNBC always busts out Jeremy Siegel to kind of rally up the bulls. Now, Jeremy Siegel, he was born in Chicago, Illinois, 1945. It's also where my grandfather, uh, the, the first Invest Talk host, was, uh, was born as well, a little bit earlier than 1945. But Siegel majored in mathematics and economics and went to Columbia University, graduated in 1967. And he's taught at the University of Chicago for four years before moving on to the University of Wharton at Pencil or the Wharton School of Business at University of Penn. Now, that's his background, and he's had a few books throughout the years, and his uh, books, Stocks for the Long Run, as well as The Future for Investors. And he outlined his investing theories and advice. And let's see. I have it pulled up here. There we go. Now, on bonds, he says he recommends against holding bonds and arguing that the long-term performance tend to be negative after inflation. A lot of a lot of people have dispute with the, the statistics he's using, that they're flawed, and I agree with that. Uh, and bonds are even more 
more unique in their sub sub segments than equities. And this is a good year as an example, right? Corporate bonds have held up fairly well compared to treasuries, long-term treasuries. So if you have short-term corpus versus long-term treasuries, very different performance this year. Uh, whereas equities, large cap, small cap, they tend to kind of run in the same direction. So I don't agree with him on that. You have to really kind of pick out what bond segment you're talking about. Now on stocks, he relies exclusively on index funds. They're easier to understand. Uh, and he says long-term active management underperforms. And that's true. And we've talked about this before. Active management is the market. And so when you have a higher fee on the market, it's going to act underperform a lower fee market tracking index. So I definitely disagree with him on that front. Now, when it comes to IPOs, this is where I do agree with him. It says, uh, he analyzed 9,000 IPOs between 1968 and 2003 and concluded that IPOs consistently underperform the small cap index nearly four out of five cases. So you can see he likes to use very large data sets. And so you're getting just broad averages. Now on tech stocks in the year 2000, Business Week magazine interview, he said, I have voiced my concerns about the technology sector and sometimes advise people to shade away from that sector relative to its percentages in the S&P. I really am concerned with these companies that have PAs, P's of 90, 100 and above. And he was right on that, but he was wrong on being bullish in 2000. He said he expects 7% per year real returns on stocks because uh, that's what they've seen over the last two centuries. And he was wrong on that, right? 2000 was kind of the peak and we had a, a secular bear market. And that's why you really have to understand where these arguments come from. When you use very large data sets, you're just simply getting the averages and you don't know how large of a dispersion of outcomes there could potentially be. You expect that to be the average outcome, but there can be drastically different outcomes than just that average when you're using these large data sets. So, uh, you know, I'm not a huge Jeremy Siegel fan, but you know, it's always interesting to hear what he has to say. I wanna give you that caveat when you see him on CNBC. Now we're heading into a break, check in. We're gonna hang on uh, and talk to Nick in LA. You will be next. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99Chart. Let's go talk to Nick in Los Angeles who wants to talk about Meta. Uh, hi, Justin. Yeah, um, pretty simple, uh, just sort of mean reversion bull call on this. It's obviously been absolutely butchered in the last 12 months. I believe Zuckerberg personally has lost about $100 billion since he started his uh, metaverse quest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think he might just take the L and decide to stop at some point and that translates into stopping the uh, the crazy capital expenditures we've been seeing, which have destroyed the free cash flow. 
And if they just do a about face and just quit, I think the stock could really shoot up. And I just think it's been butchered so badly this year that it could go up, you know, just because. I agree with you that if he decides to cut off the massive spending on the metaverse uh, that has destroyed their, their free cash flow, that the stock would skyrocket. But we just had an earnings announcement where he doubled down and he, he there was no sign of him wavering. Um, and the fact that, you know, he's been in control of Facebook from the beginning. He has, he turned it into a behemoth. Uh, and those type of people, they get an ego about them and they think that they can do no wrong. And they think that their next idea is as good as their first idea. And it, it I don't see rock bottom here. I just see a, a bad leader that is making hard-headed bad decisions. Um, and so my question to you is, what about the current situation makes you think that Zuckerberg will suddenly change his mind a week later? I, I mean, he's down $100 billion in net worth because of... You think that's changing his life? Made. You think he's changing his life? It's not changing his life. He's living the exact same life as he did before. Of course, but it's got to be... You said you spoke to his ego. That's got to be a pretty bad ego hit. He probably want to see that reversed. I mean, in his mind, his idea of the metaverse and the, the, the way he changed the entire name of the company to Meta. This isn't a side project. This is he's betting the future of the company on the metaverse. He changed the entire name of the company. He's gonna he did that what a year ago? You think he's gonna pivot after one year? No. I see no reason to believe he's gonna pivot anytime soon. Now, I agree with you, he should. The rational thing would be to pivot after losing $100 billion and seeing this, the stock plummet 25% post earnings. Another 6% today. But until I get some sort of sign, some mea culpa, that this is actually going to change, I don't, I don't know why anyone would believe that this kind of suicide mission to enter the metaverse is going to reverse. I think he's going to continue with it. So if you want to bet on that, I think you're. I think you're right. It will skyrocket if you are right that he will. Uh, he will reverse. But I'm seeing zero indication that that's actually going to happen. Thanks for the call. And let's uh, finally talk a little bit about the tech stocks and uh, let's compare it to 2000. And now the 2000 tech wreck from 2000 2002. Saw the NASDAQ wipe off $5 trillion over a three-year period in value. Now, in today's dollar terms, that's $8.6 trillion. And so far, from the NASDAQ's high, it's down about 29%. And so that's about three, sorry, excuse me, $8 trillion. So slightly shy of the 2000-2002 route. Now, the vast, the, the majority, you know, the, the weighting in the markets is much higher today uh, in tech than it was uh, back then. And so, and, and uh, but it hasn't had quite the decline. The NASDAQ was down 70% from the high. Okay. And so, you know, the, the, there, there's a lot of things wrong uh, with Meta and Microsoft and Tesla and a lot of these large tech names. Uh, and I, the reason why I think there's going to be more downside for most of these names is because 
Think of the Ponzi sector. So these companies that were losing money, just worried about revenue growth, not caring about earnings because all they would do is just raise more capital, raise more capital, hire more workers, hire more workers. Well, those people, those those companies are now either going to go out of business, consolidate, etc., cetera, uh, get rid of workers, think of Peloton, and that's going to further erode the businesses of these large tech companies who a lot of their business were these Ponzi stocks and Ponzi companies that are now going away. So I think that's another reason why there's more downside in a lot of these names that are reliant on the Ponzi sector. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And you can get yours anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial.